Well, friends, we, we do have a, a guest this morning here who will be bringing the word to us. Uh, some, of you, some of you know him, uh, Reverend Bruce Baxley. He has been serving at Stevensburg Baptist Church in Stevensburg, Virginia uh, for a little over a decade now. Um, he, he's here with us this morning to preach. So, brother, would you come and preach? Thank you. Well, good morning. Thank you for having me this morning. It's a, quite a privilege to be able to come and bring God's word to you this morning. I'm aware that you're used to hearing it preached in a deep, booming, authoritative voice, and I'm going to up that about an octave this morning for you all. But I still have the authority of God's word. I mean, we are going to preach from 2 Peter this morning, and if you have not already turned there, if you would please turn there in your Bibles, and um, when you get there, we will go ahead and read through the passage that I'm going to highlight this morning. I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version myself. You can follow along with whatever uh, translation you have this morning. <clears throat> Excuse me. And we will begin here in verse 2, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Peter writes, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. <clears throat> so I want to focus this morning on um, the knowledge of God primarily. We'll go uh, other places from there, but I think knowledge is a major theme of this passage. It's a major theme of this letter by Peter. Peter stresses correct knowledge of God in this chapter 1, and then he's going to talk about the false prophets and false teachers in chapter 2. And in verse 2 here and in verse 3, I want you to look back at these two verses. He says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And then he goes on in verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. 
Now, this knowledge is not simply uh, knowing facts about God, although that is certainly part of it, but it is a relational knowledge. The word that Peter uses here in these verses, it, it means a precise and correct knowledge. John MacArthur says, this is a strengthened form of knowledge, implying a larger, more thorough, and intimate knowledge. The Christian's precious faith is built on knowing the truth about God. The deeper and wider that knowledge of the Lord, the more grace and peace are multiplied. So if you were to go, like for, uh, for example, to Romans chapter 1, where Paul talks about people that had turned away from God, in Romans chapter 1, he uses a couple of different words for knowledge in that chapter. In, in Romans 1.21, I'll just read it to you, you don't need to turn there, but in Romans 1.21, Paul says, For although they knew God, but not the same word here. He says, for all day they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. In this case, the word that Paul uses in that instance, it means that they had a general knowledge of God. They perceived Him. They were aware of Him. They were aware that God existed, but they didn't give Him honor or thanks. But then in verse 28 of Romans chapter 1, Paul then uses the same word Peter uses here for knowledge. It says, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So both Paul and Peter seem to view the word here that Peter uses as a knowing God is he, as he truly is and having a relationship with him. It's like Paul was saying that the people were aware of God, but they wouldn't give him thanks or glory. They were determined to not know him correctly as he is, and so God gave them over to their depravity. So this is, a, this is a relational knowledge that Peter is talking about here, that we would know God as he has revealed himself in Scripture, that we would know God's nature, God's heart, that we would, it's a relationship with God in which we love what God loves and we hate what God hates, and we worship him and we give him thanks and we give him glory. So when Peter is using this word, the knowledge of God, or that phrase there, I believe it's safe to say that he's, he's referring to a saving faith in Christ. We've moved from a factual knowledge of God and his existence to now we, we see him as he is. Paul kind of talked about this in, in 2 Corinthians where he talked about that we, um, we are changed from one degree of glory to another because the, uh, the veil has been removed from our eyes and we can see Christ in his glory as he is. And then when we see him as he is and we see his glory, we, uh, we treasure him above all else and we become like he is from one degree of glory to another. And so as we increase in our knowledge of God and our, and our relationship with him, we become more like him. So the first question I think to ask is, do you know him? That's the first question. Do you know God. R.C. Sproul said, I have spent my life studying theology. I wish I had 10 lifetimes to study theology because it pertains to the knowledge of God. The more we learn of God, the more we know him and the greater capacity we have to love him. So theology, when you study theology, theology is really just about knowing God. What Sproul is saying that by its very nature, theology is practical, practical because the more we know and learn about God, the better we know Him, and then the more we deeply love Him. Um, <clears throat> an example that I thought of was a, a young man came to John Piper, and he came to, 
John Piper's a pastor that I really uh, admire and have, have been influenced greatly by him. And, and a young man came to him struggling with a sin and wanted Piper's help. And the way Piper counseled him was he said, I'm going to give you this systematic theology book, and I want you to go home, and I want you to read through this, and we're going to meet back in about six months, and then we're going to talk about the sin you're struggling with, because the idea is that first, he needs to better know God before he tries to deal with an external sin, that the more he learns of God and God's nature and God's character, then that's going to begin to change him, and then they can focus on the sin. John Piper said, here's my reasoning. I think Satan is bringing his attacks against us, and we are using our little pea shooter Sunday school level knowledge of God to try to defeat Satan's attack. And there are such vast, deep, glorious, beautiful, strong, wonderful things about God. And when you are grasped by them, there is a powerful effect of making sensuality less attractive in your life. And so when, when adults avoid doctrine and theology, it's almost kind of like when the teenager is getting to algebra and they say, well, how do we need to know this? How is this going to help me in my life? Uh, you know, it's similar to that with theology. Sproul and Piper and MacArthur have an answer. Peter has an answer for us here, that the more we study and learn about God, the more we grow in our Christian walk. But I think we need to add, it's crucial that when we study God, we have to learn about him as he has revealed himself in Scripture. The minute someone says, to me, God is like, now they have potentially strayed into error because our opinion doesn't matter. What matters is how God has revealed himself. If someone says, to me, God is like a loving grandfather and he would never send anyone to hell, then that person has at that moment created a false God of their own making. And so we, <clears throat> excuse me, we so often see God misrepresented, and we have to be very careful to recognize false teachings. And of course, there are, you know, there are the big ones, the obvious ones that we see. You know, maybe like a, uh, a book comes out like The Shack, and that gets everybody uh, stirred up and, and, you know, about what it says about God, or when you hear a televangelist on TV. But, but oftentimes, God is misrepresented even in things that we wouldn't normally expect, uh, things that we read. Like, for example, um, I'll just give you a, one that came to my mind not long ago. I had a... Um, a copy of some Sunday school literature, just a regular quarterly Sunday school literature that would come out. I think this one was put out by Lifeway. And in that particular lesson, the author said that God took a risk in giving man the freedom to make choices. Similarly, I had a, an evangelism book that I actually had to read in a seminary class. And the same idea, they said that, that Jesus took a risk in the task of spreading the gospel by, by leaving it in the hands of men. And his disciples, that by putting the Great Commission in the hands of men, Jesus was taking a risk. But the problem is, this is not a biblical understanding of God. God does not and cannot take risks. Risk implies that there is a possibility of failure. Risk implies that God doesn't know the future. Risk implies that God is not in total control of the outcome. As if he had handed over the control to humanity, but he's, he's hopeful that they will do well. Listen to, let me just read to you what Isaiah said, or actually what God said through the prophet Isaiah. I'll just read it to you out of Isaiah chapter 46. He says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Those are not the words of a God who is at the mercy of human choices and human effort. 
Those are not the words of a God who is ignorant of the future and powerless to influence it. In fact, God's critique against idols was the fact that they didn't know the future and that they were helpless to do anything or for anyone. God doesn't take risks. If he knows and he controls the future, it's not a risk. And so it's important for us to hold to a right knowledge of God as he has revealed himself in Scripture. We even have to be careful with even things like song lyrics. There's a hit song on the radio. It's called Reckless Love. Um, and it's very catchy. I find myself unwillingly singing it when I'm in the car or when I get out of the car. Um, but the lyrics, oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. And I have concerns with that word reckless because, and I think what the, the writer of the song means, I think he probably means that God is, God's love is a love that will do whatever it takes to bring back a lost sheep is probably what he means. But, but just like the word risk uh, has problems, the word reckless has problems when you, when you relate it to God because reckless means without thinking about the consequences of an action. It means careless and thoughtless and inattentive and hasty. And does that sound like God and his love described in Scripture? I don't think so. Because God is not a man that he would be careless or thoughtless. God's love is an intentional and a deliberate love. The passage we just read in Isaiah demonstrates that everything God does, he does according to his plans and his purposes, which he has determined before the beginning of time. There's nothing thoughtless or careless or reckless about his actions. And so we have to be careful that we know right, God rightly as he is. And so in Peter's first letter that he wrote, his readers were struggling with suffering and uh, as a result of persecution. And so Peter's writing them with a message of hope and encouragement in the midst of suffering uh, that they can endure. Here in Peter's second letter, his readers are dealing with false teachers. And so I think Peter's emphasis in this letter is on truth and on correct knowledge for his readers. And Peter and Paul and John and Jude, all of these writers in the New Testament, warn about false teachers that would claim to know God or to know truths about God, but are really teaching error and deception. And James tells us that even demons know about God, and actually their theology is quite orthodox in the New Testament. They know God the Father, they know God the Son, they know what He came to do, they know, they know those things, and yet they don't love God or willingly submit to God or seek to glorify Him. And so I, I think that Peter here is saying that we need to have a, a saving knowledge of Christ, a knowledge that is biblical, a knowledge that involves knowing God and loving God and treasuring God and following God. And so let me ask again, do you know God? Do you really know Him? That's the first question to wrestle with this morning. Then, as our Christian growth comes from this knowledge of God and character, let's Look ahead a little bit to verse 3 and 4 here, where Peter writes, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire." So the second point I want to make this morning is that when we know God, we have everything we need. Through his, this knowledge of God, he's given us everything, Peter says, pertaining to life and godliness. He's given us his very precious promises. 
And I think when we talk about life here, one commentator said, probably when we look at life and godliness, we could say that life is salvation and everything that we need to live out a light of faith. And then we could say that godliness is more along the lines of living reverently and obediently toward God. And Peter is saying that God has given us everything we need to do that, everything we need to carry out the Christian life. We have it. We're not deficient or lacking in anything. We have his power and his promises that can ensure our sanctification. We have scripture to know him as he is and to know his will for us. We have the Holy Spirit working in us and changing us and equipping us and empowering us. We have our prayers, which have direct access to God through the mediation of Jesus, our high priest. We have his church as a means of our continued sanctification together with one another. We have everything we need. John MacArthur says, Peter means that the genuine believer ought not to ask God for something more to become godly, as if something necessary to sustain our growth, strength, and perseverance was missing, because he already has every spiritual resource to manifest, sustain, and perfect godly living. Now, in the early church, there was a false teaching called Gnosticism, and Gnosticism taught that there was the need of secret knowledge for salvation, that faith in Christ was not enough, that you had to get this secret knowledge that was passed down from person to person. And we have to be really careful here because oftentimes it's tempting to read Gnosticism into every book of the New Testament, uh, and we don't want to put things into the text that aren't there. So I don't know specifically if Peter here is addressing Gnosticism when he says this, but it would be relevant if he, if he was saying that because uh, he'd be saying we don't need any extra or outside knowledge. We have all that we need in God's word. Now, Gnosticism might not be something we deal with today, but we do have things very similar to that today. I would say, for example, when you're in an organization like a Scientology where you, you don't get let in on the deep truths of what they're really believing or teaching until you've advanced through their organization and you've paid enough money and you've spent enough time and you've earned enough trust and then they let you in on their secret teachings. Even things like um, Mormonism and Freemasonry all have those same aspects where with, with the Mormons, not until you get into their temple and then you begin to do their secret oaths and secret handshakes and and all of those things, or and I don't know a lot about Freemasonry, but I've, I'm told that those two have some similarities in that, that there are some secret knowledges there. Um, but on a more simple day-to-day -day level, I think that we as Christians still have to be careful about these kinds of things, about trying to spe uh, seek spiritual wisdom and knowledge outside of God's Word. Let me give you an example. I don't think anybody even hardly reads newspapers anymore now with the Internet, you know. But when I was younger, we had newspapers, and I love to go to the comic section. Specifically, I liked all the little word puzzles. And right below all of the puzzles, they would always have your horoscope in there. And it's so tempting to just take a look at it that day and just see what it says. Even if you think it's silly, you're like, well, I'll just read what my horoscope says for me today. And then it says something like, you know, I don't know, I'll make something up. Be careful of any great decisions you make today. And you're like, well, I was... I was going to buy a car today. Maybe we should rethink that and hold off onto a different day. It starts to kind of, you know, that's in the back of your mind. And then the next day, you're like, well, maybe I'll see what it says for me today as well. These things can very easily creep in. And then the next thing you know, you start to consult an outside source for this knowledge or wisdom. Um, just to show you how easy it really is, back when I was dating my wife, Andrea, we, went, we were here in Roanoke, and we went out to eat after church to a Chinese restaurant, and they gave us uh, a fortune cookie. 
And now, I mean, I, you know, when you open fortune cookies, it's more like a proverb and like your lot, you're winning lottery numbers on the back. But when, when we open this fortune cookie, and I think Andrea says it was hers, I thought it was mine, but she says it was her fortune cookie, and we're dating now, and this is what her fortune cookie says, stop searching forever, happiness is just next to you, <laughs> right, okay, <laughs> what more do you need, it's clearly a sign, right, and so uh, we actually have that in our, like, our wedding photo album or whatever, we have that little thing cut out, because at that moment, it's tempting to say, it's a sign from God. You know, he gave us this. And so um, maybe these things aren't a joke after all. You can see how easily you can be drawn into the temptation to look for knowledge outside of God's word that he has revealed to us. It's tempting to say, well, I know that the Bible is God's general will for my life, but I just, I want to know, I want to know more. You know, sure, I know this girl is a Christian. Yeah, I'm attracted to her. Yeah, she likes me too. Yeah, she'd make a great wife. But I just need some sign from God, some extra revelation. That's how we often think about it. Uh, maybe I should put out a fleece. Um, I'm not finding these answers specifically about me in the Bible. Maybe I should look elsewhere. And that's where, you know, a horoscope comes in. In the Old Testament, God's people were often making attempts to get knowledge by contacting the spirit world and using unnatural means to gain insight into the future. You know, the same way that Saul, King Saul, went to the witch to call up the, the ghost of Samuel to ask him a question. And <clears throat> these things were contrary to trusting in God and his word and his providential directing of, of their lives. And all of them at their core were just attempts for people to gain knowledge outside of God's given revelation. Uh, let me give you a specific example today that comes to mind when I think about this. Um, and I want to say it because I think it's relevant for us today. Uh, there's a book, and um, it caught on very clearly. It's, it, when you go to a bookstore, oftentimes, like Lifeway, I think used to be full of them. It was a book called Jesus Calling. And it, you, I'm sure you're familiar with it because there's so... I, I brought a list here of some of... There's, there was Jesus Calling, and then it went to Jesus Today, Jesus Lives, Dear Jesus, Jesus Always... Jesus Calling Morning and Evening Devotional, Jesus Calling 365 Devotions for Kids, Jesus Calling for Christmas, Jesus Calling Flip Calendar, Jesus Calling Bible Study Series, um, Jesus Calling Adult Coloring Book, that one has me uh, baffled, um, <laughs> guess there's a market for that, uh, uh, <clears throat> Jesus Calling Bible for Children, I mean it's this has, it, it, it blew up here. I mean, everybody was getting these books and they're all over the place, but I want to point something out that I think is very crucial. And maybe you know this, but you may not. In her original copy of her original book, there was a different introduction and she told what her inspiration for these books was in this introduction. I had a copy. Sadly, I got rid of it, but I had it. And in her introduction, which has now been removed and replaced with a different one, she said that that her inspiration from the book was another book called God Calling. And back in the 1930s or so, where a couple of people were listeners, and they would, what they would try to do is empty their mind and listen for messages from God that God would reveal to them, and then they would write them down. And one of those authors of that original book said, she said that she was grateful to receive these messages from, directly from God when, quote, millions of souls far worthier had to be content with guidance from the Bible, sermons, their churches, books, and other sources. And I have to point out that the messages did not appear to be from God. I read, I read a few of the, of the excerpts. Um, 
I didn't believe it anyway, but I'm saying that it was contrary to what God's word said. And so Sarah Young said that that was her inspiration. She wanted to see if she could do it with Jesus, sitting, listening with pen in hand to write down whatever he says. And so we have a number of problems with this. One, just the fact that the revelations don't sound like the Jesus of Scripture, that's one problem, but that's not the main one. But let me just read you an example. This is a quote, one of the quotes that she said that Jesus told her, where Jesus says, let me control your mind. The mind is the most restless, unruly part of mankind. Man is the pinnacle of my creation, and the human mind is wondrously complex. I risked all, notice that risk word I already talked about earlier, I risked all by granting you freedom to think for yourself. This is God-like privilege, forever setting you apart from animals and robots. I made you in my image precariously close to deity. That's an alarming text to me. I don't know if it is to you. Very alarming to me. But the second thing I want to point out is that what she is seeking is she's seeking a revelation from God apart from Scripture, and her reasons are that she's not content with Scripture alone. This is what she said. She said, I began to wonder if I could receive messages during my times of communing with God. I knew that God communicated with me through the Bible, but I yearned for more. Pastor and blogger Tim Chalise, uh, who's great with book reviews, says, Her deepest experience of God comes through a practice God does not endorse. Young does not only endorse her practice of listening, but goes so far as to elevate it as the chief spiritual discipline. So, obviously, we have all kinds of issues that come from a book like this. Issues of new divine revelation, of canonicity, of sufficiency of scripture, those kinds of things. But what I want to point out here is, I simply want to point out that one of the best-selling books or series right now in Christianity is based on a concept that is completely contrary to what Peter is saying here in his word, which is that we have everything that we need for life and for godliness in Christ and in his word. <clears throat> so my second question for us today is, do you know that you have everything you need in Christ and in his word, or are you looking elsewhere for wisdom or for fulfillment or, what, or what may, whatever it may be? Um, and this brings me to, to my third point here, that our response to God's equipping us is that we are to work confidently and diligently to grow in our faith, that our response to God's equipping us is that we are to work confidently and to work diligently to grow in our faith. So look at verse 5. Peter says, for this very reason, meaning he's, just, he's building off of what he just said, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, Peter gives us this list of characteristics. It sounds very similar to the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians. He lists virtue, which is basically a moral excellence is what that would mean. He lists knowledge, but here he's talking knowledge in a more general sense, in an overall understanding, not the same word from earlier. He mentions self-control, that you know, we're no longer slaves to sin and to desires of the flesh. He mentions steadfastness. That really 
is patient endurance or perseverance. I think it literally means to walk under the load, but it's to, to hang in there, basically. Godliness, again, we talked earlier, means more like a, a reverence and a respect and a holiness that we are to live with. Brotherly affection, that's going to be referring to a love for the body of Christ, meaning things like avoiding gossip and division and prejudice and those kinds of things. And then, of course, love, which would mean an unconditional and a a sacrificial love. And Peter's he's putting the responsibility of this on us. He's not saying that God is not a part of the equation, very much so. He just said in the previous verses that it's because God has given us everything that we need that now we can, with confidence and diligence, do this. It's kind of like Brother Charlie just a few minutes ago read in, in Philippians where Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. It's that tension here. And Peter says, God has been working in you and he's been equipping you, but now you develop these characteristics and add them to your faith. And so it means that we are to apply all diligence, as the New American Standard says. We make deliberate effort. One commentator said, each believer has a role to play in his transformation. A resolve, a desire, a commitment to growth and transformation must be a part of the individual believer's life if the Holy Spirit is to be effective. As believers, these qualities should be becoming more and more evident in our lives. So what I think is when it says make every effort, I think that what that means is it means we can't be complacent and stagnant in our faith. It means you can't say something like, well, I don't really like to read, so I'm not going to study much scripture. Because we must grow in the knowledge of God. It means we can't say, well, I'm not really interested in doctrine. Let's just love each other. Because understanding God and his word correctly matters. We can't say, oh, I just speak my mind. I'm sorry if people get offended easily. Because we need to be displaying brotherly affection and love. We can't just say, well, that's just who I am. I can't help it because... Peter says we need to be increasing in excellence and in self-control. And Peter says that if we aren't increasing in these characteristics, then we're, in a sense, we're spiritually sick. He says here that we are short-sighted. Where is it? In uh, verse 9, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So, Two qualities to have if you're not growing in these things are that you would be nearsighted. You can't see in the distance God's future promises. And also that you are forgetful, that we don't remember the grace of God in our past. So let me ask a third question this morning. Are you making a a deliberate effort and applying all diligence to, to grow in these characteristics of your faith? And that brings me to this final section here. Where Peter says in verse 12, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able to at any time recall these things. Peter is giving us an importance here of remembering. Often if someone says, what's the purpose of preaching? You get all kinds of answers for that. Some might say, well, it's to proclaim the good news of Christ. Or someone might say, well, it's to, uh, to, to show how all of the Bible points to Christ. Or maybe someone will say, well, it's about taking ancient truths from 
uh, God's people and showing how they apply to us still today. Uh, there any, or maybe it's for the purpose of teaching things that we don't know. But what's interesting is that Peter adds another aspect to it here that I don't think we often think about, which is that the need to be reminded of God's truth, that God's people need to be reminded. He says here, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Verse 13, he says, I want to stir you up by way of reminder. Verse 15, I'll make every effort so that after my departure, you at any time can recall these things. Even in chapter 3, he says in verse 1, now this is the second letter I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. See, I've often felt that when I'm preaching, I'm not necessarily telling the congregation things they don't already know. Oftentimes, I'm just reminding them of things they may have forgotten because we all need that. In the Old Testament, you, or you see it really all throughout Scripture, but in the Old Testament, God was constantly reminding his people, I you know, am the God of your forefathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, or I am the God that led you out of Egypt. He told them to observe special days and festivals as reminders of his past work. He told them to be careful not to forget him when they moved into the promised land. You remember he said, when you get there, there's going to be houses that you didn't build, wells that you didn't dig, crops that you didn't grow. You're going to have everything that you need. So when you get there, be careful that you don't forget him because oftentimes we forget about God when we are experiencing prosperity. Jesus, in his uh, message to the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, he said, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. We are prone to forget. We are prone to wonder. Um, Tom Schreiner, uh, one of my professors, uh, wrote, Peter hoped that his words would stab the believers awake so they would reject what the opponents taught. Believers know the gospel, and yet they must, in a sense, relearn it every day. Now, I think much of our Christian growth is, is often a matter of remembering what we already know, but we've forgotten. For example, in a, in a book I have about spiritual warfare, the author said, you know, that he points out that Satan has no power to change our standing in Christ, but he can deceive us into doubting our standing in Christ, you know, and that causes concerns for us, and the remedy is that we have to be reminded of God's promises and reminded of our identity. So you can go to a Romans 1, I mean Romans chapter 8, and be reminded that nothing in all existence can separate us from the love of God. Or maybe sometimes we feel unworthy and unqualified to be used by God, but then we're reminded about God used many uh, people with flaws and unqualified people in Scripture. I mean, that's kind of everyone who uses uh, Moses and Paul and, and Rahab and Samson and Gideon and fishermen and Jacob, all these people that he used had flaws, and we are reminded we are, we are jars of clay and that God is, is glorified in our weaknesses. Sometimes maybe we feel like we're too sinful to be loved and forgiven by God, but then we're reminded of Romans chapter 8 where it says there's no more condemnation in Christ and that, and that and elsewhere in Romans that while we were sinners, Christ died for us, that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, and so we're encouraged. Sometimes I get discouraged and I just need to be reminded of God's goodness. Sometimes I get anxious and I just need to be reminded of God's providence in my life. And so we, we all tend to forget these truths of God's word and we need frequent reminders. So let us remind one another. So as, as I close out here, let me just 
again, go back through that it's important that we know God as he has revealed himself in Scripture. If we know God by faith, then we have everything because he has given us everything that we need to live out the Christian life. And as a result, our lives should be characterized by certain traits or fruits. But sometimes we forget that God has given us all we need, and we need to be reminded of God's truth and his promises. So, so my questions today, do you know God? Do you love him? Are you following him and trusting in him? Do you know that you already have everything you need for life and godliness, or are you looking elsewhere? And are you growing and increasing in these traits that Peter mentions? You know, one, uh, an author once said, and this is the thought I'll leave you with here, about the fruit of the Spirit. He once wrote, and I thought this was profound, he said, you're only as mature as your least developed fruit. So you can say you're, that you have joy and peace, but you can't say you're mature if you don't also have kindness. You know, what if, you can't be mature if you have love and kindness, but you exhibit no self-control. I think the same applies here in what Peter's saying. It's great if you have knowledge, but what if you have that knowledge but no love? Or the other way around, what if you have love but it's without knowledge? So are you striving with all diligence to build these up so that you can be effective and fruitful in God's kingdom? And if not, then today is a good day to start doing that. Let's pray, please. Father God, I thank you, Lord, for your word that we can look into study, know you through it. Father, I thank you that you are not a God like the deist would have claimed, that you just simply created and you set things in motion and then you stepped back from your creation. You didn't leave us like that, Father. You created us with a desire that you would have a relationship with us, that you made promises that you would be with your people, that you would go with them wherever they go when you made the promises to Abraham. Father, that you... Uh, that though we were separated from you by sin, Lord, you sent your son Jesus Christ into the world that through him we could have a relationship with you and be forgiven of our sins. So, Father, that you tell us in Hebrews that long ago you revealed yourself to us through prophets' messages and through dreams and visions, but then in the last days you, you revealed yourself fully and completely to us through your son Jesus Christ. And now we have your word. Father, I thank you that we can know you through your word, that we can have that relationship with you, that you have given us all that we need, and we are to simply to do our, to strive diligently to grow these Christian traits, Father. But I thank you, Lord, that you are the one that is working in our hearts to bring it about. So thank you, Father God, for your graciousness to us. Thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you that that through Christ we know you, and we have forgiveness of sins, we have eternal life, and we have hope in you. And all these things, I I just pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.